looks like she's headed, so I guess she's teaching. That would be my assumption. So anyways, um, good morning, everyone. Good? We're doing well? Excellent. Praise God. Well, while the kids are leaving and that's going on, I, I just want to remind us that we are doing a study, that I am leading us through a study through First John, as my slide here says. And we've been looking at this book, we're in chapter 2, and we're at a familiar passage, I believe, at least would be my assumption, most of us have probably seen that. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you're probably going to want to turn to 1 John chapter 2. But while you are turning there, I wanted to take a a quick moment to do some uh, grammar education, which I know, which is is dangerous for me. Um, I, I I won't lie, my wife is definitely the grammar person in our household, but I've been talking to some folks, and I, I think I got this figured out. So, <laughs> always dangerous when I say something like that, I suppose. Okay, but anyways, this grammar lesson I want to look at is on the idea of an indicative versus an um, imperative command. So, indicative statements are concrete facts, concrete things, and in the Christian context, something that God does for us. Whereas the imperative is then the command in light of the indicative. Um, And so, for example, the indicative is being a child of God, right? We don't do that on our own. That's not something we can cause to happen. That's something God does. Whereas the imperative is to love God, right? You see the connection there? Yet, it is vital that we recognize that in order to have this imperative we must have the indicative. That again, these cannot be separated. Therefore, in order for me to love God, I must be the child of God. And so these two things cannot be separated. Now, again, you might be wondering, why is this important? And and I, I will answer that right now. I bring this all up because I've made an observation in modern evangelicalism. I'm sure you've probably seen it too, so let's see if you have. But my observation is this. That in modern evangelicalism or the modern evangelical church, we tend to focus on positive imperatives, right? Those things that we're commanded to do. Where, uh, for example, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? We we tend to think of those when we think of these commands, these imperatives. We think of the positive things, right? Or another, maybe to carry one another's burdens, something we ought to do. Whereas the negative imperatives or these negative commands are something that we're commanded not to do. Now, again, it's not inherently bad that these uh, that they exist. It's not negative isn't a bad connotation, but negative is a not to do them kind of situation. And so since, uh, well, and again, also we can't think of them as bad because they're also commanded by God, just as much as the positive commands are. However... For whatever reason, in our world today, we sometimes have this tendency to focus on the positive and almost legalize the negative, right? So someone might say, turn from your sin, and they'll instead turn that to be, well, let's just focus on Christ. Now, it's not wrong to focus on Christ. That's a good thing to do, but there needs to be the negative along with the positive in these imperatives. Having both the negative and the positive draws out clarity 
and what is exactly expected from the command of God. Now, again, as I was saying, this also then tends to lead us into a legalistic idea, and that we get so worried about what we should do that we don't look at what we should avoid. And then we only have half of the reality. Uh, but Scripture is full of both of these negative imperatives and these positive imperatives. And we do need both. For example, stir up one another in love, teach one another, encourage one another. But then also on the flip side of that, do not slander, do not lie, and do not grumble against one another. Again, we can see how these two ideas come together. And so now our text this morning is an important negative imperative. Our text this morning is this kind of negative idea. So if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, it is 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Okay, so to begin this understanding of this text, we first, again, need to continue on with our grammar lesson and, and have uh, some definitions clarified. The first word that we see that we need to uh, remind ourselves of is the uh, word there, love. Now, the Greeks had four words for love. They could say sentences much more articulate than we could sometimes when we uh, use the word love, right? I love my wife and I love pizza. Two very different statements, right? At least you would hope that that would be the case. Either it means my wife's not all that important or pizza's way too important, right? You can really misinterpret that. But the Greeks had this clarity. And so here in our passage, once again, we are uh, brought to the Greek word agape. And as you recall from my last message, I spent a lot of time discussing this word and unpacking what this really meant and what it looked like. But to boil it all down, it's an unconditional love. Agape is this unconditional love, and it's the love that God has for his people. Right? This is the love that God displays for his people, and it's not a love that you or I can earn, but again, it's a, a given love, a gifted love. We also understand it to be a sacrificial love, a love that intercedes and, and works on behalf of. And so God loves us not because we've done something or we've met him halfway and he's met us the other half. No, rather he loves us despite our shortcomings and despite our sin and despite our failure. Because again, it's this unconditional Amen. love. So Again, if you, if you want a little bit more on that, go back to my previous message. I'll, I'll unpack it even further there. But to, today, there's, there's another word that we really need to look at. And the other word we need to define in the Greek is the word 
cosmos, or you might look at it and think I just misspelled cosma. See, now I can't say it the English way because I had practiced so much to make sure I said it the correct way. The cosmos. There we go. The cosmos or the cosmos. Now, while this is the first time we've seen it in this letter, we're going to become very familiar with this word. Uh, if you have read ahead or if you've ever read through First John, then you know this to be quite true, that he is going to uh, use this word over and over again. So I think it's very vital that we take the time here to make sure we understand this idea for the world as it's going to be translated in our English text. Now, it's important to note and I thought this was really cool, that the very beginning of this word and its original usage in the Greek meant an ornament, right? To, to, to decorate or an ornament. And hence, uh, in English, we have our word cosmetics, right? To put on makeup and all of that kind of stuff. The or, uh, ordination, or not ordination, but the ornament something, right? And so this is a cool idea because then as the word was being used, it then meant to describe all of God's creation because it was his ornament, his decor, his doing. And so if we look at that, first unpacking, right, all of creation, all the things that we see around us, we then maybe would be a little confused at John's words here because it seems not quite the context because that would then mean all of the creation is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life. And that's really not the context that we see in John's letter. But luckily, this word continued to be used in other ways as well. And another way that this word cosmos was used uh, was to illustrate or to unpack or describe the ideas or the systems of an ethic or even ethics in general, and specifically in the Christian world, those that are opposed to God. So basically, to, to say this another way, these are the ideologies, the worldviews, the traditions, or any set of beliefs that are not in line with God. And that those that actively combat against God and His way. So now, we look at this definition, and we understand it to mean it this way. Now it does make very much, uh, or excuse me, it's very clear, the flow here of John's argument that, that all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the desire of the eye, and the pride of life, because this is exactly what he's trying to address, is these systems that um, are going against God. So this is the idea that he's unpacking, not this universal idea, but again, this idea of these systems and these beliefs. So now, with that, let me sort of rephrase our text. This is potentially a dangerous thing to do to try to retranslate the Word of God, but this is just for our sort of helping us understand at a, at a quick glance. So let's, let's take a look and see how this maybe could be based on our definitions we just outlined. So this is what John Moore uh, more clarity in our understanding today would have said. Do not unconditionally love the systems of belief that are contrary to God. If anyone unconditionally loves the systems of belief that are contrary to God, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in these systems of belief are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life. And is not from the Father, but this is from these systems that are contrary to God. And these systems are passing away. So hopefully, with this quick understanding of cosmos and agape, making sure we have used that term for love, hopefully in this little paraphrase here that I've given us, we can now see sort of more quickly what it is that we're going to be unpacking here this morning. Now, verse 15 clearly commands the Christian not to love the world, but it is, excuse me, but it also states that if someone does love the world, then the love of the Father is not in them. So we're being presented essentially with a major component of what is the Christian worldview. The truth is that there are only two possible outcomes. There's only two possible realities that we can look at here, given our current, present, fallen world we live in. One option is the world and all that is opposed to God. The other is a God-centered and biblical worldview. Someone can either be for God or someone can be against him. That's it. There's no other options. There's no other possibilities. It's that black and white. But I'm willing to bet there's some thought going on here. This is a smart group. And you guys are probably starting to think, okay, hold on. How can there only be two possibilities if there are then multitude of religions out there that exist? And so allow me to quickly answer that and then prove my answer. So this basically is the case because all other religion... All other worldviews, all other system of belief, right, the world, they're man-made. They're man-centric. They focus on God. But this is where the Christian worldview is unique. It has a divine origin. It's from the very breath of God, right? Scripture, the very breath of God. So there is our biggest distinction. So all of these other systems are in rebellion, but then we have the correct view, the, the actual faith. Now, Paul helps us understand this even further. And he gives us some insight into this kind of argument in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened, in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and they have been given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to the practice, every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So while that's still there, again, look at these kind of words, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, hardness of heart. Do you see again that these are very real and very harsh realities, but again, he doesn't specify any specific system or any specific one thing. He says about this, the Gentiles, which again points back to this world that's opposed to God. So he also explains here about the old self and the new self, that the self that once was opposed to God must be taken off, but now this new self is united with God, and there is no middle ground. There's no middle self. There's the old and there's the new. And this is the exact same point that John is making in his letter. So to love the world and its ways is to be associated with that old self. Whereas the new self is united with Christ and united with God. It is what it means to abide with Christ. Jesus also says something similar, and he mentions this in Matthew chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is of the excuse me, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, excuse me, if then the light is in you, darkness, how great is the darkness? No one, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus, in this passage, does not mention three, four, five, or more masters. He mentions two. Either you love the one or you love the other. Again, there's no distinction. Either it's the heavenly, godly truth or it's the worldly system. There is no other way. We see this even in Scripture. Excuse me. Well, in Scripture, obviously, but within our salvation, Scripture teaches very concrete situations like this, that either someone is saved or they are not yet. Either someone is in Christ or they are not. Someone is repented of their sin or they have not. Someone has confessed that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of all or they haven't. Maybe even they believed in their heart that he had died and rose again, or they have not. This is the simplicity of our gospel message. Either you are in Christ, or you have not. 
Either you've turned from the world or you've turned to Christ. And so as we've looked at run from this old self and put on the new self is the call. See, that new self that is crucified and raised with Christ. Because again, this isn't something that we do, but this instead is the hope in Christ. See, our work has fallen, and it enslaves us to our sin and to the world. But we trust in the work of Christ, for He is the way unto salvation and to unity with God. So, we have these definitions now. We sort of can see what this looks like, what these worldly systems are truly all about. But let's dive a little bit deeper into the, the details here. What, you know, what it is to actually mean these, things, these statements that John makes of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life. What do these truly look like? So let's go ahead and get into that. And the first one in the text is the uh, desires of the flesh. So uh, again, Paul gives us insight here. And Paul in Galatians chapter 5 helps us to see this. And he writes this in 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, uh, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, uh, rivalries, dissensions, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and such like things. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. (laughs) To put it simply, The flesh, then, is associated with our sin. Look at these lists here. This is that old self, sexual morality, impurities, envious, divisions. All of these things are of that old self. And now see, these worldly systems, these worldly systems that we've talked about, they're they're created to feed into this kind of desire. They're made to quench and to satisfy these kind of desires. Which is why, honestly, so many people gravitate to these various worldviews and these various ideologies because it's appealing to them in their fallen reality. It doesn't challenge the person, but rather it gives into the fallen nature that we have as sinful people. However, the Christian ought to forsake such practices. There's no place for this kind of activity in the Christian life. This goes, I think, as a no-brainer statement, but look at what it says at the end of that statement, that those who uh, practice will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this clearly has no place in the Christian's life. However, we cannot take this passage to mean that this is the only manner of of thought is within the action. 
uh, that these systems of belief can also include an issue with the heart. And so our next description is the desire of the eyes, and it suggests an idea of covetousness. Consider ideologies and philosophies that encourage you to constantly look around those and say things like, I don't have enough. I'm not satisfied yet. Uh, I, th- I thought it was actually funny that in our Sunday school class, uh, the Rockefeller quote came up of how much more do you need when he was asked about as well? Just a little bit more, right? Just a little bit more. I mean, he was a well, one of the most wealthy men of his day, and yet just a little bit more. And that's this mentality, right, of the uh, keeping up with the Joneses kind of systems that we tend to see, right? I got to compete with my neighbor. I got to one-up them. If they get the latest thing, I then have to get the latest thing and so on and so forth. And this never-ending quest for becoming the greatest and the best. But see, this is not what the Christian should be thinking about. We shouldn't be concerned with whether or not we have what they have, whether or not we reach the same level that they have uh, achieved, excuse me, nor should our identity, who we are, our personality be so wrapped up in acquiring whether it be possessions or powers or, or prestige. Now, look at see again what is written to the Philippians in chapter 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in every situation to be, excuse me, in every situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I have know how to abound. I, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Christian, therefore, ought to know that the Lord gives and takes away. Let me say that again. We ought to know that the Lord gives and takes away everything everything comes from God's providence so this yearning this longing this unquenchable thirst or hunger for things that are outside of my control is not of God it's contrary to following God. See, we need to have contentment. God is sovereign. Amen. Right? He knows exactly what you're going through. He's not surprised. He knows what you need. And he knows what is ultimately good for you. I, <laughs> Last week, um, Pastor Steve unpacked this great when he was teaching through uh, Romans 8. You know, and we're familiar with the, the, the famous line, right? Romans 8, 28. Uh, we know that for those who, love, uh, those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If then we know this and trust this, 
what possible worldly idea can even come close to that? Right? If we know that God is going to take care of everything, if that He is going to give us exactly what we need and He's going to give us what is to our ultimate good, then what else could we be even possibly chasing after? And there's none that can even come close to this, which is the very point of why we cannot live in these worldly systems, live in these worldly ideas, because they're so contrary to this very reality of who God is. So then the final description about the world is the pride of life. Biblically, we could go to numerous passages about pride. Uh, There's so many warnings, so many commands against pride. Uh, At the root, pride is thinking that you are most excellent. (laughs) And and it was hard for me not to say that in a surfer, you know, term, right? Most excellent man. Again, that's totally missing my point, and I'm derailing myself. But nevertheless, that's, right, the the highest of the height, the, the most important, the most significant, the most whatever. But similarly, with it, arrogance is its close friend. And so these two, pride and arrogance, are so destructive. Again, consider pride having a place in the kingdom of God. See, because the proud would do this. The proud would look around and consider all those other others Right? potentially look down upon others and go, look at these lowly peasants who haven't quite ascended to the richness of God, who haven't quite figured it out, who are still struggling, right? The proud, no, they see themselves as these pillars of all that is right and all that is good. The proud think they have no need of anyone. The proud think they don't even need a savior. The proud don't think they need a Lord. For in their mind, who could be better than me? But this is the problem with pride. And this clearly is in contrast to God. Which is why James can make such a simple yet beautiful and profound statement. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble because pride is contrary to God. There's no way around this. So then this command to not love the world is becoming quite clear, I would say. Anything that is of the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, or this pride of life clearly, clearly should not be practiced by those who are in Christ. Now, with all of that unpacked, I need to make a, a clarifying point. Make sure that we don't get too overzealous here. Because zeal has its merits, right? It's not inherently bad to have zeal or to be zealous. But we can definitely get too carried away with it. Especially in this context of this command to not love the world. So, 
first, the church cannot run away from culture. It can't just abandon society. It can't abandon interacting with the world, right? We can't stay locked up in these walls of this building and we can't turn it into some sort of um, fortress of Christendom where we just live here and we only hang out here and we only do stuff here, right? We can't do that. We have a world to live in, especially when we consider what Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 17. And now this is in the midst of his priestly prayer to his people. And this is what he says about us. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus doesn't ask for our escape. Jesus instead prays that we'll be strengthened and that we'll grow, we'll be sanctified. That means we have to interact with this world. So while we do not love the world, we certainly have to live in it, and we don't love the things of the world, but we must be love to the world. Now, how does that play out? Let me answer by stewardship, taking care of what we have, but then also the spread of the gospel. We continue to take this gospel message that we have out into this world to preach to the lost and to preach the truth of God. Therefore, we cannot get overzealous, so overzealous that we just pull back and retreat from anything. But we also might be tempted to make this a command about avoiding all things secular or not things inherently Christian. So we have to be careful and make sure that if there's no command, we cannot then impose something upon our brothers and sisters. Rather, we must measure and evaluate all things by Scripture. Now, let me demonstrate this idea with, with, a, with a simple idea, something I, I love, the tamale. Okay, good. You are listening. Okay, good. I was going to say, I wondered if I was going to get a reaction out of that. Okay, good. Now, I love tamales. Absolutely love them. They're delicious. They make me happy, Okay. Um, yet, yet, before you guys get too excited about the tamale, let me, let me remind you that the tamale has its origins in ancient Mesoamerican history. Now, some of you might go, okay, who cares? Well, the Aztecs are likely the inventors of the tamale, the Aztecs. Now, if you don't know much about the Aztecs, allow me to help you out with the Aztecs. The Aztecs in ancient Mesoamerica, they were, yes, a conquering group of people, but they also were pagans. 
They believed in this pantheon of gods. But one of their most notorious practices was human sacrifice, in which they would take their victim up top of their tall temples and slaughter their victim so that the blood would run down the steps of their various step pyramids and whatnot. A, a, just a disgusting display of all that is wrong with the world, right? Okay, good. We agree. But that's the Aztecs. So if the Aztecs were the ones who invented the tamale, that means we as Christians, we're not supposed to love the world, right? So that means the tamale, brothers and sisters, is out. We can't enjoy them because the Aztecs invented them. Now, Obviously, you guys get that. That's a ridiculous notion. I don't actually believe that. And anybody who tried to use this kind of argumentation, which people do, their logic is so faulty, it's so broken. It's poor argumentation. However, people use this all the time. Now, their intentions are good. They're trying to live up to this command, do not love the world. But... They have this misunderstanding of then Christian freedom. So we must, again, allow Scripture to guide us. Scripture is our measure. We can enjoy those things that are in the world, but they're not opposed to God. Right? The things that are true the things that are good, the things that are beautiful, the things that are noble, the things that are honest, the things that are pure. But again, it must be defined as what Scripture defines as true, good, beautiful, noble, honest, and pure. So when we consider our tamale, it's not categorically a desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, or the pride of life. It's an acceptable thing. To love the world means to pursue the things of the world and to actively practice them. Now, this is a a person that habitually does these types of things that we've talked about, right? They are into the desires of the flesh. They give in to the desire of life, and they are very much about the pride of life. Such a person can be easy to identify. For example, our militant atheist who seeks out every opportunity to mock or shame Christians who will engage online, on the streets, in the grocery store, or wherever else they might find themselves. If they find a Christian, they will come after them. No question about it. We know these kinds of people, or maybe you've interacted with them. However, this kind of person can also hide, can also be a sneaky individual, perhaps. For example, someone who is of the world potentially could even regularly attend church. But they're a lover of money or they're excessively greedy, right? They're, they're consumed with gaining wealth. That money and wealth and that power that comes with it is their true desire. And church is just this accessory that they do on Sundays to sort of check the religious box to sort of maybe atone for their wrong action or maybe in hopes that, well, I went to church, but I didn't really care about any of that stuff. 
so maybe I'll, I'll be okay. Now, I would have to assume here that you hearing those two examples, you'd have no problem with me saying this, that those two probably do not know God, right? The one who's either the uh, militaristic-minded atheist or this guy who shows up to church on Sunday but doesn't really believe a word that's being said, right? I think we don't have any problem agreeing that those people do not know God. However, what if someone's not in that extreme, right? What if there's some nuance here? What if there's a person who's struggling with sin? Someone continues to fall potentially even into the same sin over and over again. Can we and should we be quick to jump to such a conclusion that we made about the earlier two people? I'll argue no. We have to be patient and gracious with an individual like that. Remember the earlier passages of this study. As we look back to chapter 1, we can clearly see that we all are sinners. We all need grace. We are all those that must be covered by the work of Christ. But those that walk in the darkness are those that want to be in the darkness and desire to be in the darkness and continue on in their sin. If our last example, right, this person who comes but maybe is struggling with sin after sin, if they're consistent in their repentance and confesses, look back again at what chapter 1 verse 9 says. This is so powerful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's probably all of us. We're constantly asking God to forgive us of our sin. So we have to make sure that we understand the difference between loving the world and wrestling with sin. See, loving the world is walking in the darkness. To love the world means you want the desires of the flesh. You yearn for the desires of your eye, and you are so consumed with the pride of life to the point where you'd rather have any of those or all of those than to submit to a holy and righteous God. So, if you are questioning your commitment to Christ, this, I would argue, is a good thing. We should always be examining our heart. We need to look at our heart and ask these kind of questions. Are we desiring the world? Do we long for the things of the world? Or are we desiring God? Do we want to know and be known by God? Do you turn to the world or do you turn to Christ? Are you led by the world and its ideas or are you led by the Spirit of God? See, now these kind of questions can help us to evaluate our commitment to Christ because this is a major theme of our letter is to have fellowship 
with Christ, to know Christ, to abide in Christ, to walk with Christ. If we are instead engaged in longing after the things of the world, we're in the wrong. So we should desire to have this fellowship and may that be where we focus. And if you have um, been following either online or, or here when I've been preaching, you know that this has been the, the focus of my last sermon was this very idea to love God and loving others as a connection to that. So may He be sufficient for you. We have to understand just the beauty of what it means to be saved by grace. I mean, He took on the cross so that His people would be saved. He took on the cross so that I would be saved. Now, this is, again, such a beautiful truth of our Lord and Savior, that he would love me like this, that he would do that for me. And so I pray that this stirs up in you that same kind of love for him. Now, hopefully we can grasp what it means then to love God and that no matter what the cost might be, what could possibly be better than knowing Christ. Consider the otherworldly systems. They're always striving for more, always pushing you to do more. Nothing quite ever lives up to, to, the, to the standard. No matter what religious or, or philosophic system it might be, it can't be enough. You're always striving. You're always unsure if your salvation is secure. But, but this message, the gospel message, the Christian message, nothing's better than this. It's done. It is finished. So nothing compares to having this fellowship with our triune God. Nothing compares. And now especially can take that and look at this closing verse in our text this morning. Verse 17, and the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. (laughs) There's a day coming. There's a day coming when all these worldly systems, anything that comes to your mind when you think of these worldly systems, they're going to be gone, utterly destroyed. No one's going to practice them. No one's going to be yearning for them. No one's going to be longing for them. No one's going to be loving them. But you know what will remain? The child of God, the believer in Christ. And they will remain not in darkness, but in light. They will remain with their Savior. They will remain in the perfect unity with God. God, this is what the eternal hope is that we have. Not that, you know, we're going to have to create some system that's going to endure so that we can last forever. No, it's because God has declared it. God has said it. God has made it true. And he poured out the ability 
because of the work of Christ. We now have this because of all that Christ has done on our behalf. And so this is what we get in eternity with our Savior. To be joyously connected in fellowship and in perfect worship and in perfect unity with Him forever. I can't comprehend anything more beautiful than that. I don't even really fully know if I comprehend that idea because of the mess of the world that I live in. But I'm very excited to look forward to that day to sit and to be with my Savior and to be with all those that are in Christ as we worship Him for eternity. (laughs) So, these worldly systems ultimately have nothing to offer because while they may have a temporal positive for in some people's minds they have no lasting value they're fading away they will be gone yet despite this reality we must remember that we have to live in this world we can't retreat away and just hide away from all the dangers and all the things we don't like but we must go into the world and to love the people of the world and again by taking care of what we've been given, but also to spread the gospel. And rather, our focus is not on the world, but is on Christ, to be with him forever. Because he is the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who cleanses us. And one day, we will be with him in glory forever. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives, that you would send your Son to redeem us, and that your Spirit would continue to convict us and cleanse us. So, Lord, so Father, we, we thank you and we praise you, and we ask, Lord, that you will continue this work. May you receive all the glory and all the honor, because, Lord, we know it is at your doing that this is all possible. So, Lord, help us as we go out this day guide us, we pray, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.